Father, I pray that you would be with us today. We thank you for what you are doing here at Amen. And I pray that for these next few minutes that you would speak through me and may Jesus be lifted up and may our hearts be stirred with the Holy Spirit to do what you want us to be willing to do. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The theme for our conference is, Are You Willing? And the title for my message today is, Willing to be Humbled, with a question mark. Being humbled is, humanly speaking, one of the most difficult things that you have to face as an individual. But God has made more than enough grace for us to handle whatever experience he wants us to be humbled by. And you know, when I picked this sermon for this conference, it was based on the theme. And I was thinking about how justification by faith is exactly what is needed to be humbled. And it hit me later, I picked a sermon on justification by faith on the very Sabbath that coincides with the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg, Germany. We are just three days away from that 500th anniversary. And this really is Protestant Reformation Sabbath. And as Seventh-day Adventists, we are a continuation of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation has not died. And it will continue until Jesus comes back. And as Seventh-day Adventists, physicians and dentists and healthcare professionals, we need to be true to that Protestant Reformation and to a true understanding of justification by faith so that God can use us to be his witnesses in the last hours of earth's history. Now, as I thought about this message, I went back over the story of Martin Luther, and I've been privileged to go over to Europe and to see the very sites. In fact, that's how I met my wife's parents. They led a tour through Europe, and I'm sure that the Lord had his hand in me going on that trip when I was 17 years old, because about 10 years later, Joel and I met, and the rest is history, as you can say. But I've seen the sites where Martin Luther was. And Great Controversy, page 120, says, Foremost among those who were called to lead the church from the darkness of popery into the light of a pure faith stood Martin Luther. Zealous, ardent, and devoted, knowing no fear but the fear of God and acknowledging no foundation for religious faith but the Holy Scriptures, Luther was the man for his time. Through him, God accomplished a great work for the reformation of the church and the enlightenment of the world. And friends, Martin Luther was not raised up by God to be the only person who would have such zeal, courage, and faith. We are living at the end of earth's history, and God is looking for men and women today who will have the same zeal, even greater zeal, because more light has been given since the time of Martin Luther. 
I love the story of Martin Luther. He was from humble backgrounds, and he became a monk, and he was humble and devoted to the cause. And he really tried by works and legalistic methods to gain God's favor in his experience as a monk. And it was through his study of Scripture that he came to understand the great teaching of justification by faith. Well, he decided that he wanted to go to the great city of Rome where he could gain a blessing. And so through God's providence, he was allowed to travel to Rome. Great Controversy, page 125, speaks of when he was in Rome. And here we read, by a recent decree, an indulgence had been promised by the Pope to all who should ascend upon their knees. Pilate's staircase said to have been descended by our Savior on leaving the Roman Judgment Hall, and to have been miraculously conveyed from Jerusalem to Rome. Now, friends, the Church of Rome could not get away with such a story in our day and time. But this is why it was called the Dark Ages. People thought that the staircase had been miraculously conveyed from Jerusalem to Rome. And now there's the special blessing promise that if you climb the steps, ye will receive a blessing. So we keep reading, Luther was one day devoutly climbing these steps. When suddenly a voice like thunder seemed to say to him, the just shall live by faith. This is from Romans 1.17. He sprang to his feet and hastened from the place in shame and horror. That text never lost its power upon his soul. From that time, he saw more clearly than ever before the fallacy of trusting to human works for salvation and the necessity of constant faith in the merits of Christ. It's amazing that the verse, the just shall live by faith, is in the epistle to the church at Rome. It's the very message that the church at Rome needed to not go into apostasy, yet it did. It was the very message that God used through Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation to bring down the apostate church at Rome. And it's going to be the message that God uses to lead to the final destruction and fall of Babylon. The just shall live by faith. You know, it's interesting, the two great errors of Rome are that you can either, one, be saved by your works, or two, be saved in your sins. And it seems as if the Christian church largely has fallen into either of these two ditches. Martin Luther, as he came to a greater understanding of justification by faith, began to boldly champion the truth in his local church. And he taught that nothing but repentance toward God and faith in Christ can save the sinner. This is Great Controversy, page 129. The grace of Christ cannot be purchased. It is a free gift. While he was running up against Tetzel in his territory, who was going around and selling indulgences, who said, if you buy my indulgence, you will be absolved from the gates of hell and you will gain everlasting life. Martin Luther preached against such fallacy, and he would have parishioners who would come to him with an indulgence saying, we receive from Tetzel a guarantee of the forgiveness for our sin, and we're here to confess it based on this indulgence so that we can be forgiven. And Luther was rejecting their indulgences, which led to anger on their part. They're going back to Tetzel asking for refund and it, refunds, and it led to a lot of issues. 
Now realize, this wasn't just a local church pastor going up against one territory. He was standing up against what was considered to be, the the Pope is considered to be God on earth. That takes some courage. And he eventually reaches a point where he writes his 95 theses, which largely speak against indulgences. And it was on October 31, 1517, nearly 500 years ago today, just three days away, where he nailed his 95 theses to the wall. Great Controversy, page 130, says his propositions attacked, attracted universal attention. They were read and reread and repeated in every ju- direction. Great excitement was created in the university and in the whole city. By these theses, it was shown that the power to grant the pardon of sin and to remit its penalty had never been committed to the Pope or to any other man. The whole scheme was a farce, an artifice to extort money by playing upon the superstitions of the people, a device of Satan to destroy the souls of all who should trust to its lying pretensions. It was also clearly shown that the gospel of Christ is the most valuable treasure of the church and that the grace of God therein revealed is freely bestowed upon all who seek it by repentance and faith. And listen, if you want to know where the money for those indulgences went to, just go to St. Peter's Basilica and that's the money that was used to build that. Well, of course, Luther did not gain the favor of the church of his day. And so he was called to give an account for his writings and his teachings. And eventually, he came to the city of Worms. Some of you have been there, where he made his great speech. But Luther realized his need of God before that day. The day before, he says this prayer, which showed his true connection to God. And friends, we are facing uncertain and trying times. If you don't have a prayer life with God, now is the time to develop a prayer life. If you don't have a walk with God, now is the time to develop a walk with God. If you want to be a witness for God in your practice, now is the time to learn how to walk with the Lord so that he can use you to be his witness. Let me read to you Martin Luther's prayer. This is Great Controversy, page 156. Luther says, O almighty and everlasting God, how terrible is this world. Behold, it openeth its mouth to swallow me up, and I have so little trust in thee. If it is only in the strength of this world that I must put my trust, all is over. My last hour is come. My condemnation has been pronounced. O God, do thou help me against all the wisdom of the world. Do this, thou alone, for this is not my work but thine. I have nothing to do here, nothing to contend for with these great ones of the world, but the cause is yours, and it is a righteous and eternal cause, O Lord, help me. This was someone who was tapped in to the everlasting God, the creator of the universe, who realized that God was also his friend. And Ellen White says, An all-wise providence had permitted Luther to realize his peril, that he might not trust to his own strength and rush presumptuously into danger. You know, I will have to say today, sometimes I see people in the church, as Jeremiah twenty-three twenty-one says, I have not spoken to these prophets yet. 
yet they ran. I have not sent them, yet they prophesied. There are some people who think they have a message for the church today, but it's not based on the word of God and a revelation from scripture, but it's based on their own rash presumption. And we don't need that in the church. But we do need people who are connected to the living God, who can hear God's voice speaking to them, who will be willing to stand no matter what. And so the great day came and Luther was asked to give a defense for his faith, and he gives his whole speech in German, and then he's asked to repeat it in Latin. This was in the providence of God because there were many who were listening there that day who had such dull, thick schools and whose minds were so clouded by the darkness of their time that it took twice for the import of Luther's words to get through their minds. And so after he gives this speech... The spokesman of the diet said angrily, you have not answered the question put to you. You are required to give a clear and precise answer. Will you or will you not retract? And this is his answer. Since your most serene majesty and your high mightinesses require for me a clear, simple, and precise answer, I will give you one, and it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or the councils because it is clear as the day that that they have frequently erred and contradicted each other. Unless, therefore, I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by the clearest reasoning, unless I am persuaded by means of the passages I have quoted, and unless they thus render my conscience bound by the word of God, I cannot and I will not retract." For it is unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. Thus stood, this is Great Controversy 160, thus stood this righteous man upon the sure foundation of the word of God. The light of heaven illuminated his countenance. His greatness and purity of character, his peace and joy of heart were manifest to all as he testified against the power of error and witnessed to the superiority of that faith that overcomes the world. The whole assembly were for a time speechless with amazement. And I have to ask you today, where are the Seventh-day Adventists today with the courage of Martin Luther? Where are the Adventist physicians and dentists and health professionals who will stand as reformers the way Martin Luther stood? I hate to say it, but sometimes I feel that there are too many spineless Seventh-day Adventists who will blow whichever way the wind blows, like a reed shaken in the wind. And whatever the popular trend of culture is, that's what we stand for. The only thing we take a stand for is the easy popular side. And friends, God has called for us to be his witnesses in the world. And if Martin Luther was called to take a stand for truth, you can guarantee that we will be faced in similar circumstances. And we heard a powerful testimony last night of such an example. God is looking for people in the church today like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who say, Be it known unto you, O king, that our God whom we serve can deliver us. But if not, be it known unto you, O king, that we will not bow down and serve your gods. The Protestant Reformation did not end with Martin Luther. It did not end with here I stand. It was not a simple misunderstanding. 
They were putting people to death and burning them at the stake for this so-called simple misunderstanding. God did not raise up the Protestant Reformation to let it die. God raised up the Protestant Reformation to bring it to a grand and glorious climax through the second Advent movement that he raised up as described in Revelation chapter 10. And it is through this movement that God has raised up that God will demonstrate to the world the nature of his character so that the world will be convinced that what God says is true. Great Controversy 464 says, before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. The spirit and power of God will be poured out upon his children. Friends, the future of Adventism is a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. It's not going to be a declension into greater and greater worldliness where people look at the church and can't tell the difference anymore between an Adventist and a worldling. That's not the future of Adventism. The future of Adventism is a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times when the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon God's people. And this correlates with Revelation 18.1 which says, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power and the earth was lightened with his glory. There is coming a time when the glory of God's character as seen through the righteousness of Christ in his people will illuminate the entire world. And this message is tied in to justification by faith. I have one more statement, and I'm going to get to the Bible right after this. This is Review and Herald, April 1, 1890. A familiar statement, but often only partially read. Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message, and I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. And usually we stop right there, but that's not the whole statement. Then she goes on, the prophet declares, and after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. Then she says, brightness, glory, and power are to be connected with the third angel's message, and conviction will follow wherever it is preached in demonstration of the Spirit. What this tells me is that the experience of justification by faith is connected to the loud cry of revelation. 18, where the Holy Spirit is poured out in latter rain power on God's people, where we become not simply a proclamation of the righteousness of Christ, but a demonstration of the righteousness of Christ. Romans 1, this is the verse that the Reformation is based on. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 1, 16 and 17. Romans 1 makes this so clear. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, why is this gospel so powerful? This Greek word for power is the word dunamis, which is similar to dynamite. The gospel is not a behavior modification plan. It's dynamite. And here is why it is like dynamite power. 
verse 17 says, For therein, for in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed. It's not simply declared, it's revealed. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In other words, the just or the righteous, because the word for just in the Greek is dikaios, which means just or righteous. The righteous who live by faith are a demonstration or a revelation of the righteousness of God. That is why the gospel is so powerful. The gospel is not simply a declaration without a change. It is a declaration connected to a change. It's not Zechariah 3 where Joshua stands before the angel with filthy garments, where the filthy garments are covered. The filthy garments are taken away. That's when the power comes, when the sin is taken away and the righteousness of God fills our lives. Then we can be his witnesses to the world. The gospel has power because the just or the righteous who live by faith are a revelation of the righteousness of God. It's interesting. When you look in Scripture, the same word, the Greek word dikaios, which means just or righteous, is used to describe Jesus in Matthew 27, 19, Acts 3, 14, and Acts 7, 52, among other places. And in the first instance, it's Pilate's wife saying, have nothing to do with this just man. In Acts 3.14, it's Peter who said, you condemned the holy and the just one. In Acts 7.52, Stephen gives a similar message. Jesus was a righteous, a just man. In Romans 7, we see that the law is holy and just and good, which is a transcript of the character of God. God's people are to be his witnesses as righteous people surrender to him living by faith. Now, it's interesting the just shall live by faith is not only mentioned in Romans 1, 16 and 17. It's also found in Galatians 3, 11 and Hebrews 10, 38. And interestingly, in Hebrews 10, 38, Paul connects the experience of the just who live by faith to those who are waiting for the second coming of Jesus. So the experience of justification by faith is not just for the Protestant Reformation. It's also for Adventists who are looking for the coming of Jesus. And Paul, who's the only New Testament author to use the phrase, the just shall live by faith, actually borrowed it from Habakkuk chapter 2. You may know this. But this gives us a greater insight into the concept of justification by faith. If you get a chance, turn with me to Habakkuk 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. And in this passage, in chapter 1, we see that the Chaldeans or the Babylonians are coming to overrun or overtake God's people. And so now God's people are facing a crisis because the Babylonians are trying to destroy God's people. And so in chapter 2, we read, uh, starting in verse 1, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. So God is going to send a message of reproof. And if you receive the reproof, this will spare you from being overrun by the Babylonians. 
And here is the message that comes. Verses 2 and 3 say, And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Now, a Seventh-day Adventist, what vision is that speaking of? That's the vision of the 2300 days. Well, so far I'm not seeing a reproof, but what I do know is that the message of the 2300 days is connected to the cleansing of the sanctuary. But notice verse 4, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. In other words, we have people that have a pride problem. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. In other words, here's your reproof to those of you who are facing a Babylon that is seeking to overthrow you. Now that your antenna should go up because if you study Bible prophecy, there's a Babylon at the end of the world that is going to seek to get God's people to receive the mark of the beast. Well, what is the greatest threat to God's people receiving the mark of the beast? According to what I read in verse 4 of Habakkuk 2, it's pride. And it goes right back to the spirit of Babylon. Is this not great Babylon that I have built? And yet the response is, but the just shall live by his faith. Now here's something that blew my mind away. Babylon is coming to overrun God's people. God sends a message of reproof to preserve his people from being overrun. And connected to that message of reproof is the message of the cleansing of the sanctuary beginning in 1844, which means that justification by faith, which is to deal with your pride problem, will lead to you being cleansed from sin so that the sanctuary in heaven can be cleansed from sin. Justification by faith is connected to the cleansing of the sanctuary. And Ellen White has the succinct statement in Testimonies to Ministers, page 456. What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. When men see their own nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And you can continue to read on in the statement. But here is justification by faith. It is the laying of the glory of man in the dust. Now, listen, friends, sometimes it's not easy to admit this. But as Adventists, we have a pride problem. Especially as health professionals. Wow, you, you see the letters after my name? I'm educated. So don't question me. Because I know what I'm doing. Don't mess with me. I'm a doctor. I'm a dentist. I know because I'm educated. And you know, God can use educated people to do a great work. But if you're full of pride, God can't use you. Because it's about the glory of you and not the glory of God. And so you can do all of these things for God in the name of God. And yet you're doing it to make a name for yourself. And God is looking for those who will be humble, yet zealous and willing to take a stand for God. As I bring this to a wind down, I want to take you to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. This is Jesus speaking. 
And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, friends, we could insert ourselves in here if we're not careful. We could, you could easily see us saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I know the truth. And I'm a doctor. I'm a dentist. And I, my tithe contributions are better than some of those people. So don't give me too hard of a time, God, because I'm doing my part. And I come to church. I even come to amen. How many people come to amen? I am... I'm looking good, God. You can't, you can't say that I'm too far off the path. Look at me, God. Look at what I am doing. Verse 13, And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is the words of Jesus, verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his, just, to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. There is Jesus telling you, if you want to be justified, humble yourself before God. Realize your own nothingness. We're told in inspiration that the closer we come to Christ, the more faulty we will see ourselves in our own eyes. Now, people then say, oh, well, then I must become really sinful the closer I come to Jesus. No, no, no. The closer you come to Jesus, the more the sin in your life is going to be removed. You just won't know it. And you're not going to go around and tell everyone, hey, everyone, do you see how perfect I am? You're not going to feel it, but it's going to happen. God is going to do a work of soul cleansing in your heart. Are you willing to be humble? Are you really willing to fully surrender your heart to Christ? We're told in Faith and Works, page 100, that God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. You know, it takes humility to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And let's be honest with ourselves as healthcare professionals. And as a physician, I, I say this not in any proud way, but I mean, I know how many work RVUs I'm getting per patient, and I keep track of it, but at the end of every half day, I know where I'm at for the day and for the week and for the month before they even tell me. That doesn't take any humility to have a business mentality about how I'm running my practice and what I'm doing when I see my patients, but it takes a greater degree of humility to actually connect with people in the way that God wants us to connect with our patients. Are you really willing to be the hands and feet of Jesus? Are you really willing to be the right arm of the third angel's message? As we're told in Testimonies, Volume 8, page 77, the medical missionary work is to be the work of the church as the right arm to the body. And that doesn't mean that you're making thousands of dollars a month off of the patients that you're coming to see. That doesn't qualify for medical missionary work if you're not actually touching people's hearts. 
The third angel goes forth proclaiming the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The medical missionary work is the gospel in practice. And I can tell you it's a lot easier to get up here and to give this sermon than to do the gospel in practice. And I am convinced that this is why God has raised Amen up. I was one of the medical students at that first meeting in Cohota Springs those years ago. And God is looking for consecrated physicians and dentists and healthcare professionals and anybody else who may not be a healthcare professional who is also here today to be the hands and feet of Jesus. To humble yourself, because listen, friends, you cannot be the hands and feet of Jesus if you're going around with this aura of like, don't you know who I am? I'm Dr. So-and-so. Your patients pick up on that. But if they can tell that you really care for them the way Jesus cares for them, then you can touch their heart. Then you can touch their life. Then you can be a revelation of the righteousness of God. But you might need to be humbled first. And it's not always fun. I'll admit, for me, there's probably a number of examples that I could give. But I had a perfect professional practice environment at Loma Linda. My neurology colleagues were the perfect group that I could have ever worked with. But God called me to do mission work at an Adventist hospital overseas. And while the ministry experience was terrific there, the practice experience ran into some significant challenges, unfortunately due to some politics. And now I'm in Tennessee, closer to family, living in the country in an ideal environment for a place to raise a family. And sometimes I wonder, what would it be like if I was at that place where I had my favorite job experience? God will do things to humble us. And I realize that that is, compared to what some of you have gone through in being humbled, is not that big of a deal. But God takes each one of us through various steps to humble us so that he can then use us to be a demonstration for him. Because I'm telling you, friends, when I look at the world around us, and I won't go into any detail, but when I look at the church militant even today, friends, someday soon Jesus is coming back. And this world is not going to continue the way it always has. The world will not continue to spiral out of control without God stepping in. The church will not continue to be in conflict without God stepping in at some point. And he needs people in this church who will rise up and who will say, I am willing to humble myself. God, do whatever it takes to humble me so that in my practice and in my daily life, people will see in me the hands and feet of Jesus, not for the glory of me, but for the glory of God. One of the reasons why the Holy Spirit hasn't been poured out through the latter rain is that too many of us would take the credit and say, did you see what I did? God needs people who will work in disinterested benevolence to do the work of God, to finish his work on this earth. And I believe that people in this room are going to be part of this work. If it's not you, who is it going to be? What are you waiting for? Father in heaven, may it be said of us, Christ only always living in me. 
Lord, thank you for each one who came forward. We know that you are going to do a special work in their lives. Thank you for how the Holy Spirit touched their hearts. And we know that this is going to be a, a transformative moment. And be with each one of us. Lord, may this not just be another nice amen conference where we checked off the boxes and had a nice time, but may we go home resolved to do the work of the third angel's message, which you have called, called us as Seventh-day Adventists to do. And as the medical missionary work is the right arm of the third angel's message and of justification by faith, as healthcare professionals, may we give everything in our hearts and in our lives to the advancement of the medical missionary work not just healthcare practice, so that Jesus can come soon and that we will be ready to meet him. Thank you for what you are doing at this conference this weekend, and may your spirit continue to be poured out, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.